Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. And today I have with us Lisa Harris. And Lisa Harris works with us at Food Service Partners. And Lisa is our Director of Regulatory Compliance. How are you doing today, Lisa? Just fine, Justin. Thanks. So Lisa is doing a three-part series with us on uh, regulatory compliance, basically, and I think we're covering labeling, packaging, and I can't remember what the third thing was. Allergens? Allergens, yep. And it's um, and so I'm very excited. It'll be our first uh, attempt at this sort of mini educational series over a weekend, and everyone's been asking about labeling and packaging because I think many food entrepreneurs have that struggle, and I know from being in business development that every time we have new clients come to us and try to work with us, that the labeling is one of the big issues that we go through. So day one, episode one of the educational series, actually episode 93. um, Let's talk about labeling. Okay. Where would you like to start? Well, first off, let's talk about, let's give a little background, Lisa. Let's tell me, I, well, I know that I've, we've known each other for almost 15 years, but tell us about sort of your journey in food and, and your story and how you got into regulatory compliance. <laughs> well, I tend to be one of those people. I, I don't want to say that I'm the jack of all trades and master of none, but I tend to be the person who, when the company has a hole that needs to be filled, they say, figure it out and get it done, and I do that. So when FISMA started, um, FSP said to me, you know, we really need someone who can go in and learn everything about FISMA, which is the Food Safety Modernization Act, um, and really make sure that we're in compliance with everything we need to do for the new laws. And so I started working on that and learning everything about FISMA, relearning HACCP, and there's so many different food safety programs. FISMA is the FDA food safety program that you follow when you're making items for the FDA. So, or that aren't juice or canning or seafood. Um, and it part of that too was then part of understanding and regulatory compliance and understanding labeling as we have more clients that come to us that need co-packing opportunities, we're either creating a label for them or they have a label that they would like to use. But as a manufacturer, we need to make sure that there are certain key elements that are correct and are present on the label. And so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So, I mean, what are, I mean, we we're obviously going to talk about allergens. So I think it's probably something you have to identify on the label, but I mean, how does a label work? Let's let's go to like labeling 101 and talk about like, you know, everything from the order it has to go in to, to, to sub ingredients and things like that and how all of that works. So for labeling 101, a lot of times the first people thing that people say to me when they want me to make a label is, can you make a label for this? And my first question is, what are the dimensions of the container? Um, sometimes when they're, when you're doing a lot of items and you're, you're trying to get the labeling done, people aren't, haven't even finished what size the container is going to be. And that is part of the very first question of what you need to have, um, to make a label because certain things, 
the sizes of different fonts and things like that have to do with the size of the actual container of the product. So um, that's the first thing. And then once you know that, then you go through and you start to make sure that you have all the things that you must have on a label. And there's really, um, there's five. So you need to have the actual name of the product. Um, and there's rules and, and laws that you need to follow in order to have the, the law, you know, the product on there. You can't, there was one time there was a bread company that um, named their bread Happy Weedy Loaves or, or something to that effect. And the FDA came back on them and said, you have to say it's bread. So there's always the common term that, that it must be called or you can have a fanciful name, but then you need to have like a little sub name underneath it called the descriptive name where you say a little bit more about what that is. So um, then you have the name of your product. You also have to have on the product, you need to have the net quantity statement. So that's where the size of the package comes into play because depending on the size of the package, that's how you figure out what the size of the net, the net quantity statement needs to be. The other thing that must be on your package is your ingredient list, um, which is all the ingredients that you have in your product from greatest weight to smallest weight. So sometimes when you have people formulating, especially if you're a smaller company and you've been making your very special cheese in your kitchen and now you're growing into a, a bigger manufacturing place, maybe you said, I use five blocks of cheese, or maybe you said, I use two gallons of cheese or maybe, you, you know, something with a volume or something that makes sense to you, two cans of tomatoes. But when you're making a label, you need to know what the real weight of that is. Um, and a lot of times people have issues converting the volume of something to the weight. So it's really important to know what the weight is when you're designing your product formula, just to make sure that your ingredient is correct. Um, you also need your contained statement which is your allergen statement that tells you about all the allergens that are contained and you need the nutrition labeling. Um, and then you need the manufacturer or distributor company name with the city, state and zip code. So if you're a really small company, like just starting out and you don't have a website yet and people can't find you easily on the internet, you need to have the entire full address with the street number and everything. However, if you can do a simple search, if somebody can look up your, the name that's on the package and with that city and zip and find your business and find the contact info to contact you, then you can just do st city, state, and zip. Um, well, another thing on – go ahead. No, and some people, I think they just include all the information on a package versus the actually just sticking a label on it. I mean, I assume that all the information on a package has to be the same, whether it's in a label sticker form or it's actually as part of the packaging printed on it. Um, you do have different leeways. So if you have everything on the PDP, which the PDP is the principal display panel, that's the surface of your product that your customer is going to see when they first look at it. So for some of you, it might be if you're thinking of like a cereal box the PDP is that front larger surface that you see. If you're, um, if it's something like a tub, maybe the PDP would be the top. If you're thinking of like a, a, a maybe a tub of cream cheese, it could be that. Um, maybe just it depends on what they're going to see first when it's sitting on the shelf. So, um, and then if you put 
all of your information on a PDP, like say that you're doing a case of something and not necessarily a retail container, they're a little bit more lenient about where you can place everything. However, if it's something that is um, that you can't fit everything in the front, and a lot of times you don't want to because you want it to look pretty and clean and you want to have all your nice graphics and have it be visually attractive to the consumer – you have to you're going to move all that information that nutritional information and all that necessary information to the nutri- nutrition panel um but there are rules about where that can go so that always needs to be to the right of the pdp so if you're looking at a cereal box and space on you should be able to turn it to the right and then on the right side that would be where the nutritional information is and your ingredient statement, your contained statement, and then your manufacturer distributor information. So all of that has to be listed together with no intervening material. So you can't do a cute little icon in between that information, or you can't do a little picture of a fish near your contained statement. If it contains fish, you can't do any of that. All of that print um, needs to be together and can't have anything in between, not your barcode or anything. That's interesting. I didn't know about it had to be on the right side, actually. And it actually, now that I think about it, it does make sense. You always turn the boxes to the right or turn the package to the right on the back. And so is that just something that's standardized for simplicity for people to find it? Um, I mean, that's an interesting thing. I mean, why, why so close and why to the right? Um, I don't know. It's one of those guidelines. You know, the FDA, the FDA has... Um, guidelines that you can look up in order to um, see, to learn all of this and to learn all the minimum type size and and all that sort of thing. Um, There are guidelines to follow that are really great um, that can help you design your label. There's other, there's companies out there that will help you do it too. Some of the um, documents that I use in order to um, make sure that I'm in compliance when I'm designing or reviewing a label is I use a food labeling guide that's from the FDA. The most recent one was 2013. Then there's the food standards and labeling policy book. That one is for the USDA. Um, That's an interesting one. So for the USDA, they really truly have a standard of identity for something. So a great one for that one is um, like beef uh, bourguignon or, or beef burgundy. The USDA has a standard, which I'm, I'm thinking just off the top of my head, I can't remember if it's 30 or 35%, but you have to have 30% meat in order for it to be beef burgundy. And then it has to have certain ingredients. Like it has to have wine, it has to have mushrooms, it has to have certain things. So, But if you're making a product and you only have 25% beef, you're not allowed to call it beef bourguignon or beef burgundy. So you have to come up with another name, make your name work to be what it is, like a beef stew with vegetables and burgundy wine. You can do that. But you can't call it beef bourguignon. Um, And there's lots of things that are that way. So if there's an actual standard from the USDA, you have to follow that in order to use that name. Um, Otherwise, if and then there's a lot of things that they don't have a real standard of identity for. So if you want to say you like it's a Moroccan style something or um, then you could have a chef or culinary authority write what key ingredients would need to be in your product in order to have it be Moroccan. Because again, the, you know, the, the end consumer, if you're calling this Moroccan stew, there's going to be certain things maybe that you want to see in there that you're thinking are to be in there when you eat it. And if you come and it's kind of like 
a Southwest style where, where it has chili and corn and black beans, you're going to go, this isn't Moroccan. So, um, there's those things to consider too. Then also for the USDA, there's a guide to federal food labeling requirements for meat, poultry, and egg production, which that's a little bit more um, cleaner, just egg, meat, poultry, not with all the other ingredients. Um, and then there's the FSIS compliance guideline for label approval. The last one they released for that was in August of 2017. And that guide lets you know whether or not your label, if you're making a USDA item, needs to be actually submitted to the USDA for approval or if you can generically approve it. So by that, I mean if you – and they tell you which claims you can say, like if you want to say home style or if you want to say um, – I'm trying to think of a claim that, that would be easy, but, you know, natural – those kinds of things you can say that they're sort of generic, um, but certain things are considered true claims, you know, like healthy for you. Then if you say those kinds of things, you have to actually submit it to the SEA with your, your documentation to show why you can use that claim. Another thing, too, that is interesting is um, everybody, well, a lot of people know and have seen those new nutrition panels that have the big calories on there. You know, the FDA is going to a new style that it's going to be effective at January 1st of 2020. So a lot of companies have been moving over to that new style. Um, but the USDA hasn't approved that style yet. So if you're going to if you want to use that new FDA style nutrition panel on a, a FDA nutrition panel on the USDA items, then you have to go and submit that to the USDA for approval. You can't just generically approve it. And so I have a question, Lisa, um, just because we're talking about it. So if I'm um, doing an item, how do I know what a USDA item is versus just a regular FDA item? That's a good question. So items that are USDA are anything that is, if you think of meat, but it is not seafood. So an animal protein that is not seafood. So you know, chicken and pork and beef, everyone knows those off the top of their head, but they even have are over like alligator and the ratites like ostrich or um, those kinds of things. So they're over all of those. The one that kind of falls into play for, for us even that we're looking at is eggs. Um, some liquid eggs fall under USDA and some do not. So usually if they have some kind of mix in to them, they fall under FDA Um I, I believe I have heard if the, it depends on the processing of how the shell, how the egg is removed from the shell as to whether or not it falls under USDA. So if you go to the grocery store and you go look at those liquid eggs that are on the shelf, sometimes they're going to um, be USDA and sometimes they're not. Um, and they're over eggs as well, like shell eggs. The USDA is over shell eggs. And then the USDA also takes part in um, organics programs. Um, they have a part of that. So even though that's fruits and vegetables with farming, the USDA is over some things farming, but that's really like at the very basic farming picking level that, that they're involved. And so, I mean, we talked about meat a little bit. Does it matter if the meat's in like a sandwich or a wrap? Oh yeah, that you're right. That matters too. So if it's in a sandwich, if it's between two slices of bread, then it falls under FDA. But if it's, in a wrap, then it's USDA. Um, if it's on top of a salad, it's USDA. And that's the other thing, too. It has to be at least 2% meat. 
So if you're making a gravy, <coughs> like a beef gravy, if it's got more than 2% beef, then it is USDA. If it doesn't have more than 2% beef, then it's FDA. Okay. And so, and so when it comes to labeling, that matters knowing that as to where you have to submit your label to for approval? Right. So for the FDA, you don't really, you don't submit labels. You make your label and if the FDA takes issue with it because you have, you know, the main thing you want to avoid is you don't want the consumers to be complaining because they felt that your label was not, was misleading. You never mislead the consumers. So that's one thing the FDA is always looking for. Um, I, when you there, the FDA had neat articles talking about how the FDA started and how they started with labeling because people were putting crazy stuff in boxes and calling it food or calling it um, meat and it wasn't meat, you know, that kind of thing. So um, that's how the whole labeling thing started in the early 1900s. Um, well, and some of that's with the false advertising too. That's why they're so specific. Like it's, you can't just call it a loaf. It's bread. Like it's, let's call it what it is. Let's not, you know, fluff it up or confuse what's going into the package. And I think that's part of the reason that if they want to keep things so clear on the way they do things, and that's USDA and FDA in the labeling. I know with, with food service partners, we've had a lot of that where we go through this process of making sure that the label actually is what's going in the box because you know, the co-packer are the people that we're co-packing with. Technically, we're the co-packer. But they have the name that they want to use to market. But that marketing name may not be conducive to what actually has to be on the package. And it can't make a statement, which I agree with you. It's an amazing thing. If you call it organic, blah, 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 there better be organic ingredients on the label or you're going to run into trouble. Well, that's a good one, too. Organics. So with organics, there's different levels of organic and what you're allowed and not allowed to do. So if you are not a certified organic manufacturer, if you're not a certified organic kitchen, then you can only say organic in the ingredient statement. So if you're making it, you're not certified organic and you're making oatmeal with organic blueberries on top, you can't call it organic blueberries anywhere except for in the ingredient statement. So, um, and then there's different levels of what you're allowed to say to the point where you have that organic certified on your label. So, um, and that's a whole process that has a third party company that comes in and makes sure that you're producing as an organic company. And there's certain parameters you have to meet. The big thing with that is just making sure that they can see that you're buying the organic ingredients. So if you buy 100 pounds of organic blueberries, you can't sell 300 pounds of organic blueberries because where did it come from? So you have to be able to demonstrate that what's organic coming in is what's organic coming out. And then the other big thing on that is that using organic cleaners and sanitizers and that sort of thing and, and nothing that's um, th – there's certain ones that are allowed in organic processing. Th so those are the big things there with being certified organic. Well, I wanted to ask you a question, actually, it, because of all the cleaning solutions and things like that. And we've I've had some audience members that listen to the podcast ask some questions about it, um, and why the why what they clean the facilities with or clean the equipment with never needs to be put on a label. Which I just thought about as you were saying, the organic cleaners, the organic things matter to make it organic food. 
I mean, it's a little bit of an awkward question, but in some ways I think it makes sense in that you probably want to know what your food is, equipment's being cleaned with, that it's cooked with. I could see the connection. But I mean, in your opinion, is it something that we're going to see down the road? Like in our labels, we'll have to declare what we clean our kitchen with? I don't know. I've never heard that before. That's that's an interesting point. On the other side, um, you know, there's certain concentrations that you're using for equipment where it's a food contact surface and you really don't get particulate in your food. I, I do understand what they're saying with those cleaners, but um, it's not something that you're getting. There's not like liquid sanitizer sitting on your contact surfaces and then all of a sudden you throw the food on top of it. So um, that that is a good question, but I haven't seen anything coming down the pike about that. So maybe in the future. And so um, I also want to talk about this. So we talked about organic and, and what that means and, and need to being certified. So someone comes and certifies that. But if you're USDA, and I know we're talking about labels, so we're going down a rabbit hole here. But if you're USDA, you actually have to have a USDA individual in your facility while you're producing those items. So if your label falls into the USDA side, it's more than just a label that has to be submitted differently. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if it is a USDA item, when you're talking about those minimum items that I listed that need to be on there, the other thing that must be on the PDP is the bug or um, the logo of inspection for the USDA. And each facility has its own number that is printed in that circle. Um, And then it has to be a certain size and distance. So that's another thing too. Not only um, do you have, are there minimum requirements of what must be on the label, but then there's minimum requirements of where things can be. Um, And the USDA bug has that too. You can't just crowd stuff around it. It has to have its own little space that you can see it visibly. And it has to be on the front of the package. And so I find, I mean, it's so interesting, all of it. And I, I know you spend a lot of time doing it. It's becoming such a larger part of our business at Food Service Partners because labeling has become, really is the first thing, tool of marketing your product. It's, it tells everyone what's in it. It tells them what really the name is. And it, it tells you whether or not you're being truthful in your statements about what's in it so you know as we create diets keto diets clean eating you know whether it's whole 30 or paleo all of those labels and ingredients basically tell the story of the product and where it comes from um so it's so important and all of that being said lisa i think the question that i have for you just as a side question is what is the most fascinating thing you've learned about labeling since you've started this and in your career path? Hmm. Fascinating things about labeling. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if I've found anything that is fascinating. I I think the, the fun thing for me has been that as I've learned what is correct and what isn't correct, I can sort of look at a label and, and know if someone that's made a new label is in compliance or not. Um, which that's sort of fun. I would say most labeling, everyone is doing it the way that they should. Um, There's a few little exceptions here and there, but again, as when people are new to things and maybe don't know when you first design it, you're, you're excited about so many other things. You're not, some people aren't looking at the nitty gritty of what, what needs to be where exactly on the label. Um, 
so I'll let's have to think about that one. So let's recap a little bit for everyone. I mean, so if I'm a new, I'm a new food entrepreneur, and, and I'm trying to take my product to retail. Um, obviously, I have my logo on the package or whatever. But then to the right of that, um, and what does PDP stand for again? Principal display panel. So you have your principal display panel, and to the right of that has to be your ingredient list. And does that include your nutritionals as well? Yes. So those, again, the things, if if it's not, if everything that you need, when I, like I said, the name of the food and then the net weight statement, um, the nutrition panel, the ingredient list, and the contained statement and the address aren't all on the PDP, then they have to all be listed together. They have to be um, adjacent to each other with no intervening material. And so, I mean, basically, if I'm starting something, I just need to make sure (laughs) that, one, I get a nutritional analysis on my product. I need to make sure that I know all my ingredients. And within those ingredients, we always see parentheses or not uh, um, around items. And so you'll see, like, I don't know, I don't have a good example, but we were just talking about it before the call. It's basically breadcrumbs. And then after breadcrumbs, you have in parentheses that everything that's in it. Do you always have to do that in a, in a sub item? So if it's 70% breadcrumbs, you have to literally put in parentheses um, what it is? So that, that's a good question. Just might be the wrong word. I think I'm missing <laughs> the right word. but No, no, you're, you're right. You're right. There, there's... Um... There's not too many. In general, the FDA says, you know, you want to, you, you must list them greatest to smallest and you want to have commas in between. The whole which one you want to have all upper caps and lower caps, you kind of get into what you want that to look like and what makes sense to you. I do have a method to that madness um, with caps and lowercase and capitalizing the first word as you do that. But that is a good question on the sub ingredients. So there's a few things about that. You do need to list all the sub ingredients, but there, there are a few things that you have leeway. For example, if you have like, they protect proprietary formulas when it comes to spices and the FDA does have a very clear list on what counts as a spice. Two things that definitely don't, that sometimes people might think is like onion powder, garlic powder, celery powder. Those are considered food, onions, garlic, and celery. And so you can't put them in the word spice However, most other spices, as we would know them, you don't have to list each one out individually. You can just call it spices. And if you wanted to do that, if you were making your ingredient list and doing your weight smallest to largest, and you wanted to just say spices, you would add all those spices together in their weight and then fit it into where it falls by weight. Does that make sense? So if you've got like three different spices and they each weigh a quarter of an ounce, if they get up to one ounce, you have to find where that one ounce fits in the list versus a quarter of an ounce. So you do have that leeway. Another thing that you have for leeway is that contains 2% or less statement, which if you look at a lot of labels, you'll see that. They also allow you to move those items around. They don't have to be greatest weight to smallest weight after that statement. So if you've got all of your listings there and then you get to contains 2% or less, you can move those things. And that serves two purposes. Number one, um, it protects your proprietary formula. Number two, 
if for whatever reason the pepper wasn't as spicy as you would normally like it to be and you needed to add a little bit of pepper, um, then you you kind of have that leeway to just add a little bit more spice than maybe you would on, on the actual one. And again, this is maybe the smaller ones. But if, if a spice isn't as strong as it normally is, you, you've got some lot and you're not you don't feel like it's meeting your flavor profile, you can play with that a little bit. Um, the other thing that you're allowed to do um, when you're doing your labeling, which again, it, it really has to do with an, you know, everyone wants their label to be so clean and everyone wants to cut out as much of the stuff that they just don't like to make their label look clean. You're not really allowed to do that. But on the other side, like you said, the, on a breadcrumb, if, if you're making something like you're making a meatloaf and it has, you know, ketchup in it and eggs and the, and the meat and, and breadcrumbs and the breadcrumbs have on, you know, past that contains 2% or less statement that it, that it has some kind of um, food additive that um, is a dough conditioner. You know, that, that's not really doing anything in your product. And, and less than 2% of their product in your larger product makes it be like 0.001 of a percent in your product. You don't necessarily have to include that um, if it is insignificant and has no purpose in your product. So think, for example, like if you're using a, a shredded cheese in your product and it has an anti-caking agent that is really insignificant and you're mixing it into your chili, is the anti-caking agent doing anything in a chili that you cook? Not really. So you are allowed to not include those things. In general, I tend to put almost everything on there because I feel like the consumer could know there's a lot of people out there that have reactions to a lot of things, but people do have the ability to do that. However, you can't just list ketchup and not put anything after it, or you can't just list um, breadcrumbs and not put anything after it. You have to have those sub ingredient lists there. Another thing too is on if a spice is used for a coloring, then you need to say it that way. So if you put like turmeric in your mac and cheese to make it yellow, just for example, um, you would need to say, you know, for color. So there, there's lots of little things to follow. And those guidelines that I told you about, those guides from the FDA and the USDA really explain line by line all those different things um, and what to look out for. Well, and I love that. And, and thank you, Lisa, for going into depth. So I guess I'm going to sort of turn over the floor to you and not add a question, ask a question, but I mean, if it were you and you were starting your your own business or own food product and you were getting into labeling, I mean, how would you go about it step by step to complete your process? Uh, and let's argue, I don't know, um, it's a USDA item. Let's walk through it if it were a USDA item first, and then let's walk through it if it were an FDA item. Um, it's almost the same if it if it is USDA or FDA, but, but you're right. There, there are a few things. So like I said, the, the first thing would be the size of the package so that I can determine what it can fit where, um, and, and knowing what my PDP is, because when I do that, then I can determine the size of the net weight statement. The net weight statement has to be in the bottom third of the PDP. And then it has to have double the space of the capital N around that statement. 
So it needs to be a certain size and then it needs to have a certain amount of area around it, double the size of the capital N. So those are the, the first things I'm going to do. Then I'm going to take look at the name of the product and make sure that it states what it is, um, the common term. I'm going to make sure that it has it in there. If for whatever reason they've chosen a pretty fanciful name, then I'm going to say let's maybe do a smaller name underneath. A good one for that is like if you do corn dogs. And in general, they, they make allowances for things that people know. But if you look at if you buy corn dogs and you look at this statement underneath, it might say, you know, like pork meat on a stick with corn breading. So to know what is a corn dog. Um, and then I'm going to make sure I have the formula and the process for the USDA. Like I said, you um, you have your when you're doing your label, you have to submit an actual form. Even if you generically approve a label, you have to fill out a form in order to and have that on file for the USDA to see. So when they come in, you have a printout of your label if you generically approve it and that form. And that form you put on there, what's, this, what's the total printable area on the container? What's your PDP? What kind of item it is, if it's like beef or chicken, if you're making any special claims, and then you have to have the process descriptions of everything you're going to go through in your process, like receiving dry goods, storing dry goods. I'm going to cook it like this. I'm going to ship it refrigerated, you know, all that sort of thing. And then the next part of that is the whole, your ingredient list, but just the main ingredient, like just ketchup. And then what percentage ketchup is in your product. So you have to break that down for the USDA too. Um, and then that is your label submission. And you have to do that if it's USDA, if you have special claims that you must submit, or if you have claims that are fine, you don't have to submit it and you generically approve it, but you have that there for USDA inspector to come in and see when they when they review your process and your documentation. Um, for the FDA, you don't do that. What we do, because we're we have auditors that come in and you're always trying to do best practice, when I start creating labels and I'm putting it in the label software, I also have open a log where I record what the product is when I'm doing it. It's a label approval log. What decisions I made when creating the label. If I decided to leave out the dough conditioner, why did I decide to leave out the dough conditioner? If it meets a standard of identity for the USDA, how it meets a standard of identity. So if it has to have 30% beef and our product has 33% beef, we've met the standard of identity. All my decisions I record. And so that way, if anyone ever has to come back to say, well, why did you do this? I have all my decision making in a log of when I did it and, and how I did it. And then also reviewing that you that you did. Um, a keynote for everybody, too, when you're talking about labeling and you're talking about your production. If, if you do have a labeling change, you definitely want to destroy and be very careful about getting rid of your old labeling versus coming into your new labeling. You don't want, especially if you had a change in allergen, you really don't want that old label that has incorrect information around you want to destroy it and document it that you destroyed it. So that way you, you don't have the opportunity to make that mistake. And I mean, it's interesting, right? So um, all of it is crazy. And one of the last things, and I know I said we were wrapping up, but something that just occurred to me is, and I've sort of just registered and processed, is the label changing that's happened January 1st, 2020. I mean, so one thing I think in, in regulatory compliance is you're constantly hitting a moving target because it's constantly changing. 
in just as a, a microcosm of that, we're talking about labels here where the FDA is changing to a different label, but the USDA hasn't approved that label for USDA items yet. So literally, I mean, I, and I don't know what the difference is from the old label to the new label of the, the FDA. So maybe we could talk about that a little, but my main question is this is, are you going to have to then produce two different types of label if you're both USDA and producing FDA like we do at Food Service Partners? For now, we we are. I would say the big challenge for us moving to the new FDA label was the fact that all of our ingredients weren't coming in with the new information. The, uh, I mean, there's people can go look online to see what the major changes are, but I would say off the top of my head, the big changes on the FDA label were making that calorie count larger for everyone to see, changing the the serving size, because I, what was happening a lot prior was that, you know, people were buying a pint of ice cream and it was saying that, you know, a serving was a fourth of a cup and there was, I, I don't know, four or six, whatever servings in there, I guess it's four and, um, and the, but eating the entire pint. And so, it wasn't really conducive to what people will actually eat in a sitting. Um, if you had a cup of soup that had 10 ounces in it and you were saying a serving size was eight, they want you now to say the serving size is 10, if that makes sense. Like, because people aren't going to stop eating those last two ounces, they're going to eat them. So it's whatever people would naturally eat in a sitting conducive to the container or, or what people would eat. And so they came out with new guidelines of sort of the serving size for for lots of different items. And then the last thing that's the really big change, there's a few other little tiny things, but the other big thing is the vitamins that are listed at the bottom. It used to be um, A and C um, and calcium and iron. And now you have D. Um, I th think they took out um, C, but now you have vitamin D and then you have potassium. So they're, they've changed out what you have in there. Um, that's in that nutrition panel. But again, if, if you wanted to have everything, if you're making FDA and USDA, all you have to do for USDA is submit one label from that line. So if you're doing a brand and, and it's USDA and you want to change those from the, from the USDA approved, like the old school nutrition label to an FDA, you just have to submit one label. And once they approve that, then you can change all of them. And so, so if you've already been certified for a USDA item, you get you they approve your one label change, and then you can change it across the board so as it's a similar label to to the one that you changed. The FDA, or, yeah, yeah, it can you can put the FDA on the USDA. You just have to officially submit that to the USDA. Huh, that's interesting. Um, I know. There's, I mean, labeling is. It, it's one of those things where you, you learn a lot the more you get into it. And the more you look at it, the more it makes sense. I would just say, you know, you definitely want it to be that, that you're open and honest with and clear about what's in the package so that you don't have litigation. Um, you know, that's the big thing that you want to avoid is that somebody's going to come and say, well, you were you misled me in, on my product and they sue you. Um, and on the other side, you want to be a conscientious manufacturer and try to make sure for those people that – have other allergens beside the major eight that you're really telling them what's in your product so that they can make a good decision and not affect their health. Um, but those are a little bit more gray is to, you know, there's a little allowances. Like I said, I think one other thing when you asked me what I would like to talk about 
which I see sometimes and it's kind of interesting is that whole, I don't know if you've ever noticed and, and people, when you start looking at packaging, um, if you don't have a picture of your exact product, if you're showing it enhanced the way you would eat it, or you're showing, you know, extra cherries or, you know, on top of your pie, something like that, it's really a good idea to put serving suggestion near that photo. You don't have to have to, but again, if somebody looks at the picture on your box and it shows ingredients in there that aren't in the box, they could have take issue and go to the FDA and say, well, this showed cherries on the picture and there was no cherries on my pie. So just putting that little serving suggestion there when you can fit it is a key thing. One other thing, too, especially when you're talking about people starting out or companies starting out and having a smaller label, you don't necessarily – you do need to have a nutrition panel. You do need to know the nutrition that is in your item, but there are allowances for super small companies to not have to have the nutrition facts panel on their container. There's also allowances if you have a really small container and it won't fit. And again, if you go into um, the guidelines from the FDA into the ones that I mentioned, and then the other one too is um, also the CFR 21. I think it's, hold on, I'm gonna get the number. Sorry. It's okay. I'm it's C CFR 21 part 101, which is under food labeling. If you look under that part of the regulation from the government, um, and 21 is goes is for all of um, FDA. Um, Title IX is all of USDA. I'm pretty sure seven is organics. So there's certain things if you want to go look those things up, um, you can look up the actual regulation. And I mean, one of the things, I mean, I mean, how much of labeling has been affected by the Food Service Modernization Act? Um, I, I can't say that labeling has really been affected by FISMA. Um, I, I don't really know that labeling was affected too much by that. I would say the big thing with them is, is, you know, when you're doing that label check, when you're making sure, like, say you're making three different kinds of omelets and some have cheese and some don't, you want to be really careful about making sure that the one with cheese the omelet with the cheese goes into the package with the label with the cheese because it may have milk and the other eggs for that may they probably would. But then if the other ones don't have milk, you, you really have to make sure that the correct label went onto the correct product that has the correct allergen. That's the big thing about them and, and the way you document that now versus in the past. That's, that's, I would say the key piece of labeling there under, um, Food Safety Modernization Act, but otherwise they didn't go too much into that. I mean, and arguably, uh, the you know, based on what you just said, and I want to tie it back to labeling, is labeling is actually the first basically check or step or, or area within your business as, as a food entrepreneur or any business where it sort of forces you to check the box of safety for food. Like, it's sort of it's not only the label on the package to inform the <laughs> consumer, but it's basically 
a practice and a process for us as manufacturers or us as food producers or food entrepreneurs or even beverage entrepreneurs to basically go through and, and check our system. You know, are there allergies in it? Could that allergy kill someone? Or what are the ingredients in there? Am I being honest about what I'm saying and how I'm marketing my product? You know, it's ensuring truth and honesty. And so I feel that the labeling in and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it first is because I feel like it is that stepping stone to a business. Like it's, it's important to walk through because it forces you to check all the right food safety and compliance boxes. Would you agree Absolutely. with that? Um, it, it does. And, and the other thing too, which I didn't mention that you always want to make sure is very prominent on your label is safe handling instructions. Um, you know, sometimes, again, which it sort of ties into packaging, but sometimes you might package it in a product or in a package that looks like it would normally go on a shelf. There was a company that got into trouble because they were doing cans of product, but they had to be refrigerated. And so people saw a can and went home and then put it on the shelf in the pantry. And then they got really sick and almost died. Um, you definitely want to make sure that you're telling people, you know, keep frozen um, and then or keep refrigerated, or if they must cook it, if it's raw and you don't have a kill step in your product and it's not a ready to eat, making sure that it's very clear on your package that the consumer must cook it and, and either have, you know, that they must cook to 165 and you need to have tried and true cooking directions. So if you're doing a product that's not ready to eat and it's, it's either, you know, partially cooked or raw, you really want to make sure that you're clear about that you test your cooking directions and make sure that you're going to hit the food safety kill step um, when that consumer goes to make that product before they consume it. I would say I've heard of multiple companies that were saved by having documented testing their cooking guidelines and that their cooking guidelines would have gotten rid of whatever was inherent in that. I think one that comes to mind was like a clams or something that somebody got really sick because they undercooked their clams in the microwave, but the company was able to demonstrate that they, if they prepared them the way they said, then it would have killed anything that was dangerous in them and, and it would be safe to eat. Um, so that's also a, another key thing that, that you want to have on your package. And, um, and, and that being said, I know there's expiration dates and or use by dates or best by dates. I mean, that has to go on the labeling as well. I mean, so, I mean, this is a whole other episode we're probably going to have to do and uh, outside of the three-part mini-series that we're doing and, and do a whole other mini-series on some of these other issues. But, I mean, and in, in how those dates are determined. But where do those have to go on a package? Is there a place they have to go or do they just have to be on there? So that doesn't have a place where it needs to be. You can put it anywhere. You, um, you definitely have to have something that's traceable. So it can just be, and again, depending on your product and depending on your level, it can just be, you know, a, a best by date or use by date. I have heard coming through the pipeline that in order to reduce the amount of food waste that they're looking to standardize um, what that saying is. And the difference between a best by date or a expiration date is when you're looking at your food safety or your spoilage limit on your product, you know, sometimes food is good indefinitely. I, they started putting expiration dates on vinegar and salt. Those never, ever, ever expire. Those never, ever, ever go bad. Um, but p consumers want to see it on there. 
but you do need to have that level of traceability and you want people to be consuming the product before it's either unsafe or goes bad. So, um, you know, in the freezer, food never goes bad unless it's a food that really doesn't freeze, but, um, it won't spoil it. It's not a safety issue. It's a quality issue. And so usually that's why it's a best buy instead of an expiration because food is safe wherever it just might taste gross or not be as the same quality. So those are the things to consider when you're, when you're looking at that, those numbers, but you definitely need to be able to trace it. If you had to do a recall, you know, your label is a point where you can start to tell people this is the product that is, that I'm talking about. Like say that you're buying a pepper that's, con- that, it turns out the pepper manufacturer tells you that they might have had seminal in their pepper and you use it. You use that lot that had the recall on three of your lots. You just want to be able to tell the FDA and then all of the consumers out there. It's just those three lots that were affected because you don't want to recall all of your product that you ever made. So you definitely want to have that traceability on your package so that people understand which products are safe and which products aren't. And if you see recalls, you'll see that, that they're very clear. And the way that the consumer knows or the which was recalled and what's not is based on that lotting. We had one company that told us they just wanted to put a colored dot on the package. You know, there's no traceability in that. So there there is a certain level that you need to have on there. Well, and I, and I appreciate all of it, Lisa, and, and the information. I think, obviously, we're going to go down a, quite a bit of rabbit holes on the next few episodes, and I think we really touched upon a lot of things to, to continue to do a lot of mini-series to sort of just educate uh, food and beverage entrepreneurs out there, as well as nutrition entrepreneurs, because I think there's a lot of similarities that are going to happen in that world with what needs to go on packaging and food safety and who's going to start overseeing things like supplements and things like that, but um, beyond the FDA and and what they already require. So thank you again, Lisa. And um, in episode 94, which will come right after this, we'll talk about packaging and sort of what that looks like. Cause I think labeling is a good segue into that packaging and the different types of packaging and things like that, that are out there. And, that we deal with as well as, you know, everyone out there who's trying to get a product out there has to deal with and what that looks like. Cause I think packaging markets your product, but there's so much more to it than just that and, and food safety and things like that and regulatory compliance. So thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure. And thank you everyone who's listening in. If, if you like uh, what we're doing here, please share it. Please, word of mouth is the best way. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell people you know if they're interested in being a food entrepreneur or are a food entrepreneur or beverage or nutrition entrepreneur to listen in on the episodes. Um, please share this if, if anyone out there is interested in becoming a food entrepreneur because I think labeling is really the gateway to that process. It helps you understand all the loopholes you're really going to have to jump through from a regulatory standpoint and a food safety standpoint. It's the beginning. And uh, thank you again for everyone listening in. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm the host. If you want to reach out to me or you want to be on the podcast, you can reach out to me, Justin at thefoodentrepreneurs.com. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. Thank you everyone for listening in and have a great day.